Welcome to Going Further and Higher, Shakespeare Martino's podcast in which we discuss topical or indeed long-running themes in higher and further education. My name is Sweeta Jamdar and I'm partner and head of education at Shakespeare Martineau. In today's episode, we're going to discuss collaboration in higher education and look at some of the current legal, policy and regulatory issues. Joining me in conversation today is Joanna Forbes, a fellow member of the education team and someone who I've worked with over many years advising on issues relating to collaborations between universities and other providers of higher education. So partnerships and collaborations have always been a strong feature of UKHE, but there are a number of current policy areas that are sort of directly or indirectly leading to an increase in the number of partnerships. Um, aren't there, Joe? Do you want to talk a little bit about what they might be? Yes, that's that's true. Um, the, the main driver has been the um, political imperative or direction, I suppose, to increase the number of entrants into the higher education market. So the OFS has been very keen to encourage new entrants and also to encourage existing smaller providers to apply for degree awarding powers. And in both of those cases, those providers will need some collaborative arrangement with um, an established higher education provider to validate their awards. And I think that, that that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of small providers would say it doesn't feel like they're being welcomed into the market. It feels like there's a lot of obstacles, but certainly it's much easier to enter the market than it ever has been. Um, and there's always also this sort of real lack of clarity around what sort of a relationship you need with an established provider. On the face of the act, it would be possible to do these things without necessarily having uh, you know, it'd be possible to apply for new DAPs, for example, without having any kind of relationship. But in practice, it's very difficult to see how that would work, either to have the relevant competency or indeed to have security for students that if things go wrong, there's a there's a sort of fallback position. And I guess the other aspect of validation that's interesting is that the um, OFS has finally exercised its power to enter into commissioning arrangements by commissioning the Open University to go around, um, to go on and, and validate providers where it's not possible for them to find other other validating um, providers. So see, seemingly there is quite a strong policy focus on validation, but at the same time, there are obvious risks to it as well for, uh, for institutions. And before we kind of look at perhaps some of the problems that we've seen in the past around partnerships and so on, there, there are other, I guess it's worth also just thinking about some of the other policy things that are in the pipeline that might also mean more partnerships. And I'm thinking there about stuff around um, higher technical qualifications, you know, encouraging collaboration between HE and FE, and also some of the kind of place-based policy making we've seen where, you know, it, it makes sense for universities and colleges in particular in, in, in areas it, it, to work together. But I think historically, Joe, the... the um, position around partnerships has not entirely been a, a, an absolutely happy one, has it? So, <laughs> Well, I think, yeah, I mean, there's be, there have been um, well-documented cases over the years going right back. I mean, I think some of the issues in those cases have been caused by um, institutions entering into collaborations for the wrong reasons, yeah. mainly for financial reasons, um, rather than thinking, how does this fit with, with our overall educational strategy? Um, so, we, you know, there have been examples where universities have been validating provision that they don't have the academic expertise in or, you know, almost setting up, you know, separate accreditation units to do that work rather than, you know, putting that as, as part of the overall academic strategy 
you know, where the economic board or the Senate is responsible for that overall. I mean, I think, yeah, and and, and also just just recruiting too many students, um, not exercising proper sort of monitoring and control over those, not being there when th- you know things go wrong. I think there have been a number of cases where people perhaps have looked back and thought mm, that was a bad idea. Yeah, went into it, and of course that doesn't really help the position for the students. No, absolutely. And I think that the point you made there about um, when it seemed sort of primarily as an income generation exercise rather than fitting into some sort of strategic uh, commitment by the institution, I think that's where some of the worst problems um, have emerged. And of course, the, the, you know, the, the circumstances financially in the sector at the moment are, you know, as they frequently do, looking quite tight. So we, we need to make sure that those, those sort of academic strategic collaborations remain the, the, the priority. Um, before we go on to look at the specific aspects of regulatory and legal risk that we think there might be currently, um, I guess for me, one of the challenges when we're talking about partnerships and collaborations is that there's actually an incredible range of ways in which institutes collaborate, uh, institutions collaborate. And I don't think there's necessarily a clear enough understanding of exactly what sort of collaboration we're talking about. I mean, is that something that you encounter in the work that you do around? Yeah, I mean, I've been writing sort of collaboration, if we use that generic term, agreements for 20 years, probably. And we think we have defined terms. The OFS thinks it has defined terms, you know, franchise and validation being the two main ones. But actually, in my experience, those are used interchangeably and in very many different ways. And often, Validation is used as a catch-all term for any kind of collaboration because yeah. because of the university's, I suppose, need to put it through its quotes validation processes. So you have sort of pure subcontracting arrangements, which we would also call perhaps a franchise. But then you have very many arrangements where the university might teach part of the program, particularly overseas in places like China, where that's a requirement. Um, or you might have, you know, um, arrangements where. You know, the first two years of the course belong to the partner, the third year belongs to the university. It's very difficult to categorize those um, into neat kind of silos. There's very much, and also depends on who's paying, where the money's coming from, whose students they are, who's doing the reporting. There's any number of permutations. So yeah. I find that, you know, actually just you know, trying to get to the bottom of what those are is actually quite difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think that that then feeds into. The sort of levels of legal and regulatory risk you see, because uh, th- there are certain things that are expected across all partnerships, but the model might not lend itself to 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 some of those. So if we then move on just to have a think about what um, they are, and obviously the the single biggest change that I think we've seen is around um, uh, the regulatory framework and and the way that's evolved. So what do you think are the kind of key areas of the regulatory framework that can pose problems when it comes to um, collaborations. I mean, I think the main one is at the moment is, and I don't think institutions have really necessarily got to grips with this. Is the OFS's sort of um, clarification? Let's put it like that: that the validating awarding university is responsible for those students, come what may. And I think you know some some universities in, in years gone by have thought, oh, it's a, you know it's a validation, it's their course, it's their students. We don't have to worry if it all goes wrong. And and that's just not acceptable, um, either contractually with the students or indeed for the IFS. So the most recent sort of updates to the quality and standards conditioning, yeah. conditions, 
have made that absolutely clear and say in words of one syllable, you know, these conditions apply, whoever students they are, wherever they are, if they're receiving an award from the registered provider. So yeah. I think that's one of the things that we've, I've been thinking about as I've been writing agreements more recently, is how we ensure that we comply, that we, the awarding university, um, comply with those conditions in relation to students who could be thousands of miles away over whom we have very little control. Yeah. So that, that's that's one issue. I think and that allied to that are issues such as student protection and consumer protection who are responsible for that, student experience, you know, who's saying what to the students about, about, you know, who's responsible, which party is responsible. I think there's all sorts of things that come from that understanding that in fact you are responsible. They are your students and you, you do need to bear that in mind when you're when you're entering into these relationships. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that um, a, a couple of the biggest provider failures that we've seen, one was obviously uh, GSM, which which predated their entry onto the register, so they were never a registered provider. But um, And the other, of more recently, was ALRA. Both of those were obviously validated, um, validated by other institutions. And I think that's presumably brought that very sharply into focus in the minds of the OFS. And we have to assume they will come out with more guidance on exactly what they want to see around validation um, in the in the future. For me, the other area which uh, I'm sure we will get more clarity on soon is whether there is any evidence or clear evidence um, around the B3 outcomes. Um, so uh, continuation, completion and progression and how that's affected by whether or not it's a partnership and uh, and so on. So I think those, you're absolutely right. The quality and standards conditions have changed the nature of the game as far as risk is concerned. Um, moving on then to, you've mentioned them a couple of times, and of course they are absolutely at the heart of all this, and that's um, the students. And I think in partnership provision, um, students who are studying with partners, they, they can have a particularly unique set of issues around understanding who's responsible for what. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think it stems from the fact that the universities, particularly the awarding universities, never really think about the status of those students. Um, and 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 I write many agreements where it says, oh, yes, they'll enrol with the university or they'll register with the university. But actually, on what terms? Because, you know, the standard terms and conditions that university has for its ordinary students, let's use that term, are not always relevant. Yeah. And... Nobody necessarily thinks about that and they just enrolled online like everybody else and nobody applies their minds to their status, what they can have access to, what they you know what their obligations are, which procedures apply to them. And it's very few institutions actually properly explain that, I think, mm -hmm. to partner students. I mean, of course, the position is even more complicated. They're spending some time at the partner and some time here. You know, that's, that gets very tricky. Um, in a sort of split site arrangement or a two plus one or whatever it might be. But even even standing to students where they spend the whole time at the partner, I think it's very unclear um, that students, you know, just it's not it's not made clear enough to them who's responsible for what and what they can expect. Um, yeah. And I think we can probably see the RFS looking at that in due course. Yeah, absolutely. Um I think the other area which I'm quite interested in is is how international partnerships, the kind of evolving 
um, regulation or otherwise of those? Because as you as you mentioned, the OFS's regulation regulation framework says it doesn't matter where the students are. The these uh, conditions need to apply to them, and that obviously poses some challenges. But we've seen other legislative areas of intervention that are kind of touching on partnerships in a way that um, historically hasn't really been the case. So you've obviously got the provisions around overseas funding in the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Act, which doesn't necessarily specifically say it's about partnerships, but it's any source of funding from anywhere. And so it would include some sorts of partnerships that you might be entering into, teaching partnerships. Um, depending on the value and, and all the rest of it, or it could include those things. We'll have to see what the guidance says. So that's a, that's obviously a way that the OFS is going to look at them and say, well, are they threats to academic freedom? Again, when you're looking internationally, what standards are you applying there? Because it's a very different world um, in terms of how freedom... Well, you have that in relation to even, you know, things like equality law yeah. and those sorts of things where, you know, we have seen many times issues with you know, students and, and staff who are... Who are Traveling perhaps to the overseas institution, sometimes, you know, not being able to go there, not being able to live there because of their particular characteristic. Yeah. And, and the laws of the country where they're based are not the same. And we can't impose our legal standards, our policy standards on a, an institution based somewhere else. So that's a very difficult issue, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So we've identified quite a lot of risks there, <laughs> potentially. In partnerships, which is probably the easy part, but in terms of managing those risks, actually, there there are some things that institutions can do. Um, and I guess our shared experience—I don't tend to draft the contracts; I do tend to get involved when things have gone wrong. Our shared experience is that they're not necessarily always followed. You know, may, often because of time pressures or, or whatever. But so, if we just went through, what would you see as the key steps that institutions could take to mitigate uh, some of the risks we've talked about? Well, I think the first thing is is being clear about what the partnership is designed to deliver. I think one of the things we see is that, you know, the the kind of vice chancellor might be travelling somewhere and enter into some sort of, you know, MOU with a with an institution overseas, saying yes, of course we'll do a collaboration on X without any sort of actual thought as to whether the university back home has the resource, the skill, the manpower, or indeed, you know, whether it fits with their academic strategy. So I think you know you have to have a very clear idea of why you're entering into a particular partnership and what that's bringing to your overall academic um, strategy for the, for the university, um, number one. And then obviously you've done that, you identify, you identify your partner and then clearly due diligence, although extremely dull, is something that does need to be done, uh, not only at the beginning, but also on a, on a sort of periodic basis. So most universities have a provision for revalidation or review every five or six years. And, you know, it's expected that you will at least refresh the due diligence at that point, as well as doing a fairly detailed um, assessment at the beginning about the partner and their financial standing and their reputational standing and all of those other sorts of things to try and flush out any potential issues. Um, so then obviously it's the drafting of the contract and most people have their own standard ones, but, you know, it, it, it would be worth, I think, just reviewing those in the light of the changes to the B conditions and the the, the shifting emphasis um, of the OFS um, in relation to the sort of university awarding universities responsibilities. Um, of course, in in certain you know in China, for example, you, you're stuck with their standard contracts as well. So trying to make sure that um, those two things can sort of fit together is quite tricky sometimes. And then obviously, once it's started, you're looking at proper monitoring. Yeah. 
Um, and I think that's maybe somewhere sometimes where it falls down. I mean, particularly maybe with a long running partnership where you there's a degree of trust and you work with them for a number of years and that's all gone well and perhaps you can get a bit careless or don't relax. Yeah, re- maybe you really yeah, maybe you are. <laughs> and, and don't necessarily apply the same rigor. And and perhaps don't, you know, I think we've seen cases where there have been warning flats, you know, there have been issues of that have yeah. been raised either by students or other members of staff um, within the faculty back home or whatever it is, concerns, and those are not followed up. Um, and I think, you, you know, institutions will need to be much clearer about doing that and making sure they're on top of any issues before those really get out of hand. Yeah, yeah, I think that that, that last point, sorry, Joe, interrupt. I was going to say the, just the final thing, in fact, it's in the sequence of events, it's not a final thing. The other thing, as well as the sort of collaboration agreement, is the terms and conditions you have with students and just thinking about how that works, whether you need to have separate terms or some sort of modification in your standard terms for um, students-based partners. And, and also, of course, your student protection plan, thinking about how the partnership fits into that, what the risks are, because there will be different risks. Yeah. So, sorry, I cut you off. Go on. No, I think I, I mean it's interesting we've landed back on student protection because yeah. that, it fitted in with the with the the point I was going to make in response to your thing about um, ensuring this proper monitoring and making sure you follow up on on actions because actually failing to heed those early warnings can then result in something you know almost unmanageable um, and. Although hindsight is a wonderful thing, sometimes when you look at it, you think this isn't just a question of hindsight. Those they were obvious to some people that there were problems with this. So I think being able to to make sure that there's a proper escalation route and that then is taken seriously at the time. But the final thing, of course, is if you do decide to terminate. You know, I mean, we often get inquiries, you know, about termination of of, of contracts where you know there aren't the grounds in the contract necessarily to terminate, even though you're fed up with the whole thing. So, you know, you need to handle that quite carefully. And also, of course, the teach out, which yeah. can go on for three, four, five years, depending on, you know, what kind of courses the students are on. And actually, you know, it's all very well to say, oh, well, we'll take the students ourselves or we'll, we'll transfer them to someone else. But that's not always possible. Yeah. Um, and so actually you're going to have to work with that partner for, quite a number of years to come. So that's quite a difficult thing to manage sometimes. That's yeah. teaching out a bit, bit of it and probably not something that, that people want to contemplate, but it's useful to think about it now. I was just going to say that, that I think as lawyers, we, we're, we're the real doom mongers. Yeah. That's right at the beginning of the relationship. You're trying to get people to focus on what happens if it all goes wrong. And that's not really the mood they're in. At yeah. that. But if you haven't got it right, then come come that day. Um, you've got all sorts of issues about how you implement them. So, well, thanks very much for sharing your thoughts, Joanna. That was great. And to all of you for listening, we hope you'll join us next time. So don't forget to hit the subscribe button. And if you like what you've heard, please do leave a review. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye.